0: raised to walk podcast episode 13. Welcome to the raised to walk podcast where we're walking out the life of faith. Romans 6 verse 4 reads as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father so we too might walk in newness of life and this show is designed to help you do just that. Now here's your host Carla Alvarez. Thanks for joining me for the Race to Walk podcast. And today I'm going to talk about St. Nicholas and his relation to Isaiah chapter 58. So on my blog, I've mentioned before that one of my clients is the Kingwood Garden Center and I go into, into the Garden Center about once a week to get information for their weekly email newsletter. And this week, Michael wanted to include a blurb titled, Ho, 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 Merry citrus, because they were going to, wanted to use it as a lead-in to suggest giving citrus trees as Christmas gifts. So we're in Houston, so we can do that. And as I started gathering the information, the thought crossed my mind to see if there actually was a connection between Christmas and oranges. So, I googled Christmas and oranges, and a whole series of articles on oranges in Christmas stockings and St. Nicholas came up. And while I do remember getting oranges in my stocking and bags at church at Christmas time when I was young, not being Catholic, I had no idea of the origins of this association. And As a matter of fact, I had never even attended a service in a Catholic church other than a wedding until the 2012 March of Remembrance. So not only did I grow up in Protestant churches that were as far from Catholic as you could get, but I also attended a private Christian school that taught church history with an extremely anti-Catholic slant. I came out of it thinking that the Catholic church was the evil empire and the source of all heresy. And it wasn't until a few years ago when I started... Really reading the Bible cover to cover, rather than just reading from it, as a friend puts it, and looking at not only what the Bible really says, but source documents of who the church fathers over the centuries actually were, that my perception of the Catholic denomination as a whole started to change. There was a lot of disagreement on doctrine, and some of it was heretical. But far from being lukewarm Christians that muddied the faith through syncretism and the paganism around them, they were passionate defenders of the faith. And St. Nicholas was one of those early church fathers who was so sold out to Christ that he devoted his entire life to advancing the kingdom of God. And St. Nicholas is what we know in the Western you know, world we'll know him as Santa Claus, but the origin is actually in the Catholic saint Saint Nicholas. So, who was Saint Nicholas? He was born in Petara, Turkey, now as known as Demre, to Christian parents. And different accounts uh, state he was born in 260 AD and some 280 AD. Due to the fact that he was de- appointed bishop during the Dicleton persecutions, which began in 303 AD, and also the fact that it's very well established that he was appointed as a young man in his 20s, it's probable that the latter date is more accurate, so probably 280 AD. He spent a lot of time with his uncle, who was an abbot at the nearby monastery, and after Nicholas's parents died of the plague, his uncle cared for him. And like Hildegard de Bingen, he was raised within a monastery from a very early age. After he finished his education with his uncle, he moved to Myra, Turkey, where he became a priest. So, under the influence of Galerius, Diocletian, who was the Roman emperor at the time, began, began an intense persecution of Christians in 303 A.D., And while there had been periods of persecution before under the Roman Empire, beginning with Nero's persecution of the early church in 64 AD, the tides of persecution would ebb and flow over the next 300 years. And this last of the 10 episodes was so intense that Eusebius, the church historian, said that the blood of the martyrs flowed like a river. And this is an account from Eusebius, who was a first-hand witness, and this was actually taken from from Pamphlius, which is the church history and chapter 9. It would be impossible to describe the outrages and tortures which the martyrs and Thebius endured. They were scraped over the entire body with shells instead of hooks until they died. Women were bound by one foot, and raised aloft in the air by machines, and with their bodies altogether bare and uncovered, presented to all beholders this most shameful, cruel, and inhuman spectacle. Others, being bound to the branches and trunks of trees, perished, for they drew the stoutest branches, three hundred and thirty together with machines, and bound the limbs of the martyrs to them. And then allowing the branches to assume their natural position, they tore asunder instantly the limbs of those for whom they had contrived this. All these things were done not for a few days or a short time, but for a long series of years. Sometimes more than ten, or at other times tw- above twenty, were put to death. Again not less than thirty, then about sixty, and yet again a hundred men with young children and women were slain in one day. Being condemned to various and diverse torments. We also being on the spot ourselves have observed large crowds in one day, some suffering decapitation, others torture by fire, so that the murderous sword was blunted, becoming weak and was broken, and the very executioners grew weary and relieved each other. And we beheld the most wonderful ardor and the true divine energy and zeal of those who believed in the Christ of God. For as soon as sentence was pronounced against the first, one after another rushed to the judgment seat and confessed themselves Christians. And regarding with indifference the terrible things and the multiform tortures, they declared themselves boldly and undauntedly for the religion of the God of the universe, and they received the final sentence of death with joy and laughter and cheerfulness, so that they sang and offered up hymns and thanksgiving to the God of the universe till their very last breath. And this is what was going on when Nicholas was a young man and in the beginning of his pastoral ministry. He was appointed bishop after his predecessor was martyred in the persecution. He himself was imprisoned for eight years, and he was actually one of the fortunate ones, as you can tell from the account I just read, because many were not so lucky. It may have been because of his reputation, um, maybe he had family connections that kept him from the worst persecutions. He was not released in until Galerius issued the Edict of Milan, also known as the Edict of Toleration on his deathbed. While there have always been differences of opinion within the Christian faith, uh, many of the epistles of the New Testament were written to confront the heresies that sprang up from the very beginning of the church Prior to the Edict of Milan, it was a weighty matter to throw your lot in with Christ. Even during the quote good times when active persecutions weren't taking place, Christians were still seen as subversive pagans who didn't conform to the religious practices that were seen as such an integral part to the Roman culture and empire. They were discriminated against and risked having their possessions confiscated. And that was the mildest. After Constantine came to power and won a decisive victory in 312 A.D. after a vision of the cross and the message, in this sign you shall be victorious, he became a friend of the Christian church. Much like C.S. Lewis, whose transformation from atheist to premier Christian apologist for the 20th century took place over a period of eight years, Constantine was not completely committed to Christ until 320 AD, when he began vigorous efforts to discourage paganism in the the Roman Empire. And at this point, there was no longer an external threat to the church, but one was raging within. In Alexandria, a disagreement had broken out on the nature of the Trinity between Arius and his bishop, Alexander. It was a serious issue. The nature of God and who Jesus is is the foundation of the Christian faith. But rather than discuss it between themselves, Arius pulled his friend Cebus, the church historian mentioned above, and the bishop of um, Caesarea, Palestine, slash Israel, that's what it's known as today, into the disagreement. From there, it blew up into a crisis that the entire church was involved in. Arius had already been sanctioned. However, the controversy and the Arian movement continued. And there was a general consensus that a formal stand of the church as a whole had to be made. And this led to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. So what does this have to do with Santa Claus? Nicholas was one of the 300 bishops at Nicaea, and during the council, Arius had to defend his position. Nicholas was so incensed at the blasphemy that he heard about Christ that he punched him out, seriously. The council was in an uproar, and they threw Nicholas in jail for the rest of the council. And at the end, Arius and his heresy were refuted, and the council agreed on the creed that defines Christianity to this day, which is a Nicene creed. So just to go over what Arius believed, um, and there are people who believe this today. There's There are people who, some people believe Jesus came and they maybe believe that he was a Messiah, but not the Messiah. Other people believe that, uh, a lot of different beliefs. Arius believed that Jesus was divine, but he did not believe that he was Lord. So he did not believe he, not, he denied the Trinity. He did not believe that God was of the same essence. And that is what the debate was about. And that is what uh, they claim very specifically, stated very specifically in the Nicene Creed, that, that Jesus is of the same essence. He is God, part of God. It's, he's, it's not God the Father and then a lower deity. He is He is Lord. And that's what Jesus himself said. He said, I am. He made that claim and that statement. And this is the Nicene Creed that they came up with. We believe in one God, the Father, all sovereign, the maker of things visible and invisible, and in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, Word of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, Life of life. True God of true God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. Son, only begotten. Firstborn of all creation. Begotten of the Father before all the ages, through whom all things were made, things in heaven and things on earth. Who for us men and for our salvation came down, was made flesh, and became man, lived among men, and he suffered, and rose again on the third day, and ascended into the heavens, is coming to the Father, and shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and we believe in the one Holy Spirit. One of the other reasons Nicholas was so well known and was regarded so highly that he exemplified what Jesus said his followers would do in Mark 16, verse 17-18. through 18. These signs will accompany those who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. And then in Matthew 10.8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. I haven't found an account of him speaking in tongues, but other than that, There is an account of a miracle related to pretty much every other thing Jesus commanded his followers to do. There is a site called uh, the St. Nicholas Center and they list accounts of all the miracles and works that that he did during his life. One of the most well-known stories and the one that relates most directly to some of our Christmas traditions today is that of his gift to the man with the three daughters. So the story goes that the father had fallen on hard times and did not have the resources to provide a dowry for his daughters. The oldest decided that she would sacrifice herself by going into prostitution so that her sisters would have an opportunity to marry. After hearing this, Nicholas tossed a bag of gold through a window which landed in a stocking hanging to dry. He did the same the following two nights, the last of which they discovered their benefactor. He refused to take credit and put it to the account of God's providence and care. The tradition of Christmas stockings stem from that legend, and the oranges in the stockings are used to represent the bags of gold. Now every child growing up has had the threat of Santa Claus bringing them a stick or a lump of coal if they've been bad. He knows. This character of omniscience actually stems from an account of a miracle of St. Nicholas, one that he was most well known for and the reason that he is a patron saint of children in the Catholic Church. An innkeeper had killed and dismembered three children and hid their remains in tubs of pickles. Nicholas was traveling in the area and came to the inn. After a word of knowledge, or as the Catholics call it, the reading of the soul, Nicholas raised the children from the dead, and they left with him still smelling of pickle juice. But Nicholas didn't limit himself to confronting heretical priests. He dared to expel demons wherever he found them. There are numerous accounts of deliverance through his prayers. However, one of the most dramatic accounts is the destruction of the temple of Artemis in Myra. The accounts differ as to why he took it to Artemis in her own house. Some say he was exasperated that his congregants still had one foot in the door of paganism. Others say that demons were afflicting the people who lived by. Personally, I think he just wouldn't stand for a demonic stronghold in the area under his spiritual jurisdiction. If he would knock down someone blaspheming Christ in front of the emperor and 299 other bishops, what are a few demons? Regardless, He decided enough was enough, but the account said that his weapons were not physical. He battled it with prayer. This is a quote from the account of the story. As soon as the saint began praying, the altar collapsed, and the statues of of idols fell down like leaves of a tree when a strong wind blows in autumn. The demons who inhabited the place left, but protested to the saint amidst their tears. You have been unjust to us. We did you no harm, and yet you send us away from our home. We have made this our home while, while these misguided people adored us, and now where can we go? And the saint replied, Go to hell's fire which has been lit for you by the devil and his crew. In this manner all altars in the area were destroyed. So how did this demon-busting, dead-raising, power-prayer warrior became the almost comical figure we think of today as Santa Claus? The image of Santa Claus is primarily in the U.S. and areas dominated by American commercialism. Even as late as the mid-20th century, St. Nick was still pictured as a Catholic bishop in Europe. And that was really the issue. St. Nicholas was way too Catholic for the primary anti-Catholic Americans. In the minds of many of the early Americans, Catholic, equated to evil, and in the post-Reformation effort to completely disassociate with anything that smelled remotely papist, they ended up throwing out a lot, including Christmas and St. Nicholas, along with the stories of the rest of the giants of the faith that the Catholic Church recorded. The celebration of Christmas wasn't even allowed when Puritans were in power. This ban ban lost its hold as more immigrants came in who refused to give up their religious holidays the German settlers had particularly strong ties to the Christmas traditions. But the transformation of hardcore Nicholas to Jolly Santa was really due to Washington Irving. In 1809, he published a satirical work, complete fiction, called Knickerbocker's History of New York, in which Santa Claus played a role. And this comes from the Dutch name Sinterklaas for St. Nicholas. That story portrayed him as a roly-poly Dutch burger. So just as a side note just as a side note, this was not the only time Washington Irving's loose regard for the truth led to misinformation by the public at large. In his biography on Christopher Columbus, he fallaciously stated that the religious leaders of the day thought that the world was flat. That book was used as a textbook in many schools and that propaganda is still believed to be truth today. So what is St. Nicholas's connection to Isaiah 58? Nicholas is someone I can identify with in many ways and would like to become like in others. I can totally relate to wanting to just deck someone that in arrogance and belligerence denies Jesus. I haven't done that, but there have been so many people I've just wanted to smack some sense into. I've seen some healings, but I want to see the massive miracles that he walked in. I want to be able to pray and spiritual strongholds are literally demolished. I don't believe we should pray to saints because as believers we are all saints. We don't pray to people dead in the grave because the living Christ is interceding for us. They are fallible humans just like we are. But I do think that we can learn from their lives and be inspired that God could use them in such wondrous ways. And if he can use them in that way, he can use us in the same way. This is what really struck me about the life of St. Nicholas. Isaiah 58 has been a passage that has kept coming up recently. It's kind of been my theme for the past week, particularly verse 8. The chapter starts out with God declaiming the superficial followers, those with self-righteous holiness. They say they desire God, but their actions just don't line up. And the chapter begins, Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple day after day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves. Don't you even notice? They are saying, We are doing all of this. Why don't you answer? And he replies, I don't want show. This is the type of fasting, the self-denial I want. And it continues at the end of verse 3. I will tell you why, I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourself in, with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is a kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burdens of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless give clothes to those who need them, and do not hide from relatives who need their help. And that is exactly what St. Nicholas did. He put his faith into action. He gave to those in need, freed the oppressed and fed the hungry, and so God delivered on his promise to him. It's in verse 8, it says, Then your light shall burst forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. Nicholas's heart was for Jesus, and he cared for what Jesus cared for. Because of that, God answered him when he called. The story of his life is a testament that God is faithful and will do what he says. Just as in Numbers Chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? If you'd like to research St. Nicholas and the Council of Nicaea or anything else that I've mentioned here more, you can go to org forward slash p13. At the bottom of the article, I have a list of the resources quoted. Lord, thank you so much for your faithfulness and your goodness. And thank you that you answer prayers and that you work miracles through your people who are willing to be used for you, not just in the Bible, but today. And thank you for for the testimony of the life of people like St. Nicholas who show that, who show that God is great and he is good and he does not change. And he will deliver his people and do what he said he would do. And help each one of us to understand that. To understand the depth and the power of your love for us. And that those of us who have accepted Christ have the same power within us. Raise Christ from the dead. And that you are just waiting to to work your mighty will through us. If we are willing to submit to your will, Lord, change our hearts, Lord, and make us willing to obey you. And I ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Raised to Walk podcast. We'd love for you to continue to walk with us, so head over to RaisedToWalk.org to get free updates. Have a blessed day, and we'll see you next time.